welcome to episode 75 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle. And I'm Lee. It's August 18th. And in today's episode, we're going to discuss a new project that is engaging with the topic we have talked about a number of times over much of the last year. The role of humanities in shaping responses to COVID and potential future pandemics. Now, we've talked to historians about this topic over the last eight months or so, but we thought having someone from another humanities who's doing a new project would be ideal. Our guest today is Kirsten Oster, who's the Gladys Louise Professor of English at Rice University, where she's also the chair of the English department and the director of both the Medical Humanities and the Medical Futures Lab. Just a couple administrative hats, I suppose. She's the author of two books as well, Medical Visions, Producing the Patient Through Film, Television, and Imaging Technologies from Oxford in 2013, and Cinematic Prophylactis, Globalization and Contagion in the Discourse of World Health from Duke University Press in 2005. I will also add that Kristen won a New Directions Fellowship, which gave her time to complete an additional master's degree in public health, where she focused on the role of information and communication in end-of-life care. Kirsten is currently at work on her next book project entitled Quantified Health, Learning from Patient Stories in the Age of Big Data. She has written for Slate, The Washington Post, Big Data and Society, and Catalyst, among other places, and written about COVID for Inside Higher Ed. Kirsten is currently leading a multidisciplinary project called Translational Humanities for Public Health that will identify humanities-based and humanities-inspired responses to the COVID-19 pandemic to document and help others build upon these creative efforts, which will be the focus of our discussion today. So hi, Kristen, and welcome to the Infectious Historians. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, as I said, this episode returns us to a question that's driven, I would say, much of my thinking, and perhaps your thinking as well, Lee, from earlier in the year, and I think continues kind of in the background as continual interest, which is what is the role of humanities in shaping COVID and other pandemic responses? As I've noted before, I often read and listen to people complain that the humanities or even just more quote unquote social factors, we might say, are not taken seriously enough during COVID, which is certainly true. But then I think these statements, complaints tend to stop at that level because few people know what to do or what doing more would actually even entail. After our conversations with people such as Rich McKay or Sven-Erik Mumland, I've come to group these ideas together in what we might call two different buckets. One is short-term and one are long-term attempts to engage and change this reality. Now, Sven-Erik was at the fore of immediate responses to COVID through his media outreach, while Rich made us think way back in January already about how to build long-term communications and infrastructure to make these changes possible in the future. And I think the conversation today moves us forward into this long-term thinking as well. So I'm interested in getting thoughts about how to plan and move forward for future pandemics. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just to reiterate what you said, I agree that we people from the humanities are not really trained for this. So, I mean, the complaining that you don't really like I guess it's really just a way for people to try to participate in the discourse or just shout out their opinions. Now, I guess one question to continue though, one question is whether we should really group the humanities together in this context when most of the little we hear, at least from my perspective, are individuals who, again, don't really seem to get the kind of ready infrastructure to convey the message or their messages in the same way that scientists do get. But it seems that Kirsten is really in the position of being able to think through these ideas since she's been reaching out to broader audiences as in her two books on how disease medicine and patients are depicted on the screen while also having a broad academic background. But before we move on to the interview, how have you been doing this week, Merle? So I'm back to the grind for lack of a better term. Lots of writing, lots of avoiding people and just huddling down for a few more weeks in our childcare pod before they go back to their larger daycare school again. The exciting thing, Lee, as you may have noticed in the background, is that my wife and I, after 18 months or so, have switched offices officially. She got tired of her office and I got tired of my office slash bedroom. And so that's very exciting. 
I mean, I have to say that I've seen this background, I would say probably half the times we record this interview. So maybe it's very exciting for you. I mean, I, I was expecting more. Well, I used to take it in here to interview people because this is a smaller room, so less echo. But then, as you know, Lee, I had the very smart idea to get a boom arm with a pop filter recently, or I guess a few months ago now. And so I put that up at my desk in what was my office. And I can't actually put it in this room for various reasons. It doesn't attach to this desk very well. I mean, I was the most excited to see your background in the tent when you used it. Record yourself in a tent in your living room. That was the best, I think. Yeah, that was when I couldn't use an office at all because there was no office in our bedroom yet. And, you know, when you read tips about podcasts, they say go to enclosed space. A closet is the best. And the closets aren't big enough in my house or, well, there's too full of stuff, I guess I should say. And so I decided a closed tent was the way to do it. And as you know, that was a very uncomfortable way to record podcasts with the computer and the mic on my lap desk on my lap, hiding in a tent that I couldn't sit up straight in. So that was less than enjoyable for everyone who now knows. But what about you, Nellie? Are you still on your staycation in Haifa or have you gone staycationing elsewhere? No, so we've moved them now in one of Tel Aviv's suburbs, right on the Mediterranean coast. Most people here are outside on the beach or eating outside, so no masks is really the norm. Shops do have signs telling people to wear masks, but personally, I don't think I've been in an indoors setting other than our apartment for a few days. So it seems like uh, COVID isn't really here. At least it's not on the beach, let's say. Now, outside this bubble, COVID is still pretty bad. So the wave here in Israel is still going on. The third shots are being given to, I think we're at about 12% of the population now. And it's still unclear if the school or daycare year are going to open up in just September 1st. So what, like a week and a half from now. Now, one thing the US media is doing quite a bit is we're using Israeli data as our baseline right now to extrapolate about what the US might look like in several months. So based on your anecdotal sense in three different cities, are people masking when they're inside? Or is one piece of the reason why your cases are going up because everyone's just decided they're not going to do anything and thus the cases are going to rise? So there's obviously different places in the United States I'm thinking of that are treating this at the moment differently. Yeah, I would say that people are masking up, but compared to the past, more or less everything is open now. Right. So I think the general idea has been to quote unquote live with COVID rather than just go automatically into lockdown. So living with COVID means that more people interact with each other in closed spaces, which are not always well ventilated. So you do get more infections that way. So even though I would say that people are masking up, infections are still high. I think we're somewhere around 6,000 new infections per day these days. Yeah, but that's here in Israel. What about you, Kirsten? Where are you and how is your fall term shaping up? Well, I am in Houston, Texas. And here in Houston, things are pretty bad with Delta. It's one of the worst places in the U.S. right now. And, you know, we're in the state of Texas, which like the state of Florida has a government, a state government that is very oriented toward uh, individual responsibility rather than kind of societal mandates about things like masking. So you can see these things going hand in hand. So cases are very high here. The healthcare system is very maxed out and it's, it's a pretty dynamic situation. I mean, things, new things come to light every single day about how we're handling things. Out of curiosity, do you feel any kind of difference when you're on the streets, so to speak, now versus, say, two months ago or four months ago or whenever? 
Well, I think you'd have to go back a little farther to get the contrast because Texas was one of the first states to undo the mask mandate. That was back in March of 2021. So there was a time when you would be out and about and almost everyone would be masking. But now that's not the case at all. Now it's like people are living in two different realities, kind of going around, you know, and some like stores and restaurants and things like that are, it's very uneven how they're applying this idea. And it's, it really depends on what the owners want to do. And then you kind of see that with the people who are going into them as well. So it's pretty uneven. So have you experienced or, or seen really any conflicts, let's say on masks? So let's say someone who did not want a mask going into an area where someone else required them or asked them to mask. I mean, have you, have you seen anything like that? I haven't seen anything like that personally, but that's probably partly because I am not going out to a ton of places because people are not taking it seriously. I mean, it it's kind of bizarre to me. You know, I keep a very close watch on the daily case counts and the positivity rate and all this stuff. But it seems like the way that a lot of people are behaving, it's as if it's not happening. So I'm just staying as far away from that as possible, um, especially because I have family members who can't be vaccinated yet. So I'm trying to kind of do what they can do, you know, as sort of our baseline, which means basically staying home a lot. So maybe we can turn now to the discussion. And as we always do, we'll start very broad and then discuss things in more detail. You've created a new project, which is, as I said, is Translational Humanities for Public Health. So could you maybe tell our audience very briefly what that is? And then, as I said, we'll get into more details. Sure. So this project is now a website, a publicly available website that contains a database of about 130 projects that came to us as a result of people responding to a survey that we developed last year and sent out, which was designed to get people to describe projects that they were doing that were based in the humanities in some way or inspired, we use that term too, by the humanities, and that were trying to make some kind of direct intervention into COVID, like reach some community specifically or policymakers or something like that, and that we're using humanities methods to do it. So we now have this site that has all of these projects on it, and we're adding more constantly that you can search, and you can search in a lot of different ways by disciplines. So one of the things we're interested in is like how people came to the projects they're doing, and also like the audiences they're trying to reach or the media they're using. So it's basically a site where you can look at what I think of as translational methods, which is something that it's not necessarily a term that lots of people use, but I think of it as one that's really relevant to the current moment. So could you maybe explain a bit further what the translational means in this context? Yeah, so, you know, I took this from the translational sciences, and we actually talk about this a little bit on the website, on the homepage. This is a term that's used in many of the sciences to mean kind of the process of going from basic to applied science, say, right? Like, so something you might explore in a lab to something that is, you know, done for patients or others somewhere out in the world. And I have long thought, and the COVID pandemic has really um, crystallized this for me, that the humanities are capable of, but thus far have not been that great at getting our work out in that way too, where we are really intervening directly, going from kind of theoretical work potentially, or work that's more abstract to something that is more applied in a real space and addressing a real problem. So to me, actually, the site is partly a database of projects, but it's also a database for developing theory to further refine this idea of what exactly translational humanities methods look like, how we can build them, and then what we can do with them in the world. 
Do you have any other model of how this idea of translational humanities might look like, or was this something you started thinking about in the context of COVID? Well, I mean, this is something I've been thinking about for a long time in the sense that my work has kind of evolved from being sort of media studies for humanities scholars about medicine and public health to media studies for people who are doing medicine and public health and humanities scholars and others. So I've been trying over time to do work that addresses questions that are of interest and that are of importance to people in both of those fields. I started realizing as I was doing research on public health films, for example, like historical public health films, that of course, people in the field of public health make those films because they need to communicate something to the public, right? So the work that I'm doing about those films actually could help them do it better. Like it could close that gap between a critique there and something that they could incorporate into their methods if I oriented the work towards them. You know, like if I actually treat them as part of my audience in a real meaningful way. So to me, this project now is kind of a continuation of that mode of thinking. Could you maybe give our listeners a couple examples that you can think of, of projects that you guys have on the website in case they're curious? Sure. So one of them that I like to talk about a lot is one that really inspired me to actually start the project in the first place. It's Stop AAPI Hate. And this is a project that was started by a professor of Asian American studies in San Francisco who was seeing early in the pandemic all of the racist and xenophobic attacks on Asian Americans in the U.S. that were really driven by political rhetoric. Them were actually being enacted through violence towards people. And he, this scholar, saw that and just created this site that basically is a way for people to report incidents so that he could then have a database, so that he could have evidence to show to policymakers and others to say, like, this is really happening and this is the scale it's happening at. This was long before we were hearing about this more broadly in the media. And one of the things that I love about this project and I think is amazing is that Recently, that project has actually gotten funding from the California state legislature. So it's really like a perfect example of a project that actually reaches policymakers. They recognize its value and they are now supporting it so that the work can kind of continue at a broader scale. So that's one that I think is really, really great. But another couple examples I'll just mention briefly. There are a lot of projects that are about physicians or nurses or other healthcare professionals finding ways to cope, which is a huge, huge issue, as you know, and is getting worse. And so there are projects that are about things that have been done in specific hospitals, like one is based in Philadelphia, Jefferson Hospital, and it's just a storytelling kind of group, like a self-documenting storytelling group. But I like it because they're, again, they're using humanities methods of constructing narratives and sharing them with each other in order to kind of process what's happening, but also communicate it outwards. But they're doing it to actually cope, like on a real day-to-day -day basis to just kind of get through this crisis. So given the, the really intense interest in online projects during COVID, so would you think that people are overwhelmed by the amount and diversity really of projects that are out there or are they still hungry for more information so to speak well i think both are sort of true i think that people are overwhelmed by a lot of things at this point people are overwhelmed let's just say that and fatigued and in need of a break change improvement in the situation but also, I think what people are hungry for has been kind of evolving. So like, as I was just mentioning, you know, the need for healthcare providers to find new ways to cope, I think that's going to be one of the big outputs of this project over time that's going to evolve. Because, you know, for the field of medical and health humanities, that is something that people have done work on in various ways in the past. 
But the amount of burnout, the amount of people leaving the profession, the disillusionment when treating like right here in Houston, people are really feeling this right now. Healthcare professionals who are looking at all the people coming in who don't have to be coming into the hospital, but are it's demoralizing to them. So this is a space where there's a really clear need for really applied interventions. And there, they have to be interventions though, that address really fundamentally human needs, which the arts and humanities, I would say, can really help with and in obvious ways. And I've seen that with some of the projects on the site already. And one thing I hope is that over time, we'll be able to look at all the different projects on the site that are trying to do that in particular and figure out, you know, like looking at these examples, which ones are most effective, you know, what kinds of context do they work well in? And, you know, are some of them scalable? Because this is a need that I think is going to be really profound going forward. So do you see that, I guess, as kind of the natural evolution of the site over the next, you know, three, five, 10 years, whatever your timescale is in terms of using this to understand kind of needs moving forward in ways in which you and others can intervene in the future? Well, yes. I mean, that's one of the goals. I think like there are certain patterns that we've seen that show clusters of projects that have particular kinds of themes in them or particular kinds of applications that I want to build on. And that will also be a way of building more on the, the question of what translational methods really look like for the humanities. But also a couple other things that I really want to do are, we've been working really hard this whole time to make the project as global as possible. And this is a really interesting question, partly because, of course, the pandemic is experienced very differently in different parts of the world and on a different temporal scale, right? So, you know, like some places weren't even having a bad time of it at the time when it was worse in the United States, and then things seemed better here and they got worse there and so on and so forth. But also this raises the question of language, of course, and um, we are hoping to get funding to develop tools for making the site, the survey, and also the site accessible in a bunch of different languages so that we can really approach this question about what these methods look like really with a global perspective in mind, because I think that will bring a lot of nuance that is really important and needed. So maybe to follow up on Merle's question earlier on, I mean, I guess it is relatively safe to assume that after COVID, we probably will have another pandemic, right? I mean, this is something that is, has been spoken of before COVID and I guess will continue to be spoken of after COVID. So how might the site be useful for this next, hopefully hypothetical pandemic in the future? So one of the things I've thought about for this site is that it came about first in a response to COVID and this pandemic, but I hope that it can actually be a model for humanity's responses to crises. So more broadly than pandemics too, for example, to think about like the climate crisis. I mean, and some of the projects that we've seen do bring these together already in some way. And I know that there's a lot of humanities work that's about environment and that's about climate change. And of course, human health and climate change are totally interconnected and climate change is going to drive the next pandemic, right? So, and it's already driving all kinds of other health crises. So I see this site as evolving to include other projects or as a resource for people who if they're focused on a particular kind of crisis where they are, might be able to look at the site and see different ways that people responded and adapt those methods or those kinds of projects to the crisis that they're having. But one of the things that I really want this site to do is highlight 
what can be gained if you bring these humanities methods and perspectives into a crisis response early rather than, you know, a year and a half in after, you know, all of the kind of big investments have been made that either pay off or don't pay off. So I think that's a really good question then to follow up, right? I mean, I think at this point, to an extent, COVID is a social issue, for lack of a better term, right? That is to say, the decisions people are making are ultimately based on the science, but whether or not they want to follow the science or not follow the science is less about the medical changes to what the disease is and more just about politics or policy or however you want to frame that. So how do you envision then the humanities, which is about social factors for, you know, lack of a better term, playing a bigger role in an initial start date, say, in the future? Well, so one thing that inspired me to do this project early on was looking at ways that different state or even, you know, large urban governments would pull together teams of experts early on to you know, figure out their response. And they didn't have people on these teams who, for instance, were experts in racial health disparities or gender and labor. It was abundantly obvious to people who do have expertise on these things that these would be big issues. And it was obvious to them at the start, right? And it eventually became obvious to other people, but not soon enough to prevent some of the worst consequences. So, you know, I would like to see those kinds of experts included in crisis response teams, for example. Some governments around the world are better about doing that and recognizing that expertise than others or recognizing the areas that they'll need guidance in. So it's that kind of thing that I really want to provide a resource for. I mean, one of the things I think we need more in the humanities, and I'm certainly not alone in saying this, is just better, more concise demonstrations of the value of the perspectives we bring in a concrete applied setting, right? Like not something that you have to read 200 pages to get its relevance. You know, that kind of really narrow, prescriptive stuff. That's not what we usually do. It's not what we're really trained to do. But if you want to make an impact in a kind of crisis setting like that, you kind of have to be willing to do stuff like that. Okay, so you've actually written about the role of projects such as this for depicting pandemics. How has your work, your previous work, academic work really in scholarship, how have they influenced this project? Well, for me, a really pivotal moment occurred after my first book, Cinematic Prophylaxis, which was, you know, really written with other humanities scholars in mind. But somehow it wound up being reviewed in a journal of public health. Actually, I think it was like a New Zealand journal of public health or something really beyond any place I ever expected it to get reviewed. And they actually found some things of real value in it, like not just, you know, like this is interesting or something like that, but we can use this to think about how we do X. And that was a really eye-opening kind of thing to have happen because it made me realize precisely that the ways that scholars like me think about the relationship between representation and reality, say, is something that actually can be converted into something that is helpful to people who have to construct representations with the intent of influencing a specific reality, like a public health person that's tasked with creating, you know, a visual message to persuade people to do something. So you got this inspiration for idea from reading the review, so nobody actually approached you or anything, you just read the review of your own book and it somehow clicked? Yeah, I mean, it made me realize like, oh, there's a broader audience for this kind of work. And it made me think, you know, I would like to be in dialogue with that audience. And in fact, over time, it became really clear to me that if I want 
to be engaged with that kind of audience that I have to take seriously what that requires in terms of like academic style of writing, in terms of what kinds of settings I might seek out to give presentations or publish things. And it also would require that I actually formulate research questions somewhat with these audiences in mind, right? Like what would they care about? Where's the intersection between you know, my interests rooted in the humanities training I have and the kind of that perspective, what's the intersection between that and what people in say public health would find useful, but that humanities scholars would also find useful. Where's that overlap? So was this why you ended up applying and getting the new directions fellowship and going on and getting the, the masters in public health? So was this like the background for that? Yeah, it is completely. I really felt like I had studied a lot about public health. I had studied public health films, historical and contemporary. I had studied a lot about the history of public health and realizing that people, of course, in public health were still very much using all kinds of media forms to do their work. I felt like getting that kind of training would give me the language. And then it also turned out the credentials are valuable too. But it gave me the language in terms of both research methods, but also in terms of thinking about how people formulate questions and kind of what are the sort of insights or endpoints that are meaningful. What was maybe the most surprising thing that you've encountered, kind of like taking at least a couple of steps towards a public health sphere or discourse, so to speak? I mean, there are a few. So one is, I was kind of surprised by how much overlap there is in some fields of public health with humanities methods and concerns. So actually, like critical race theory is something that people have been talking about in public health for kind of a long time. The social determinants of health, which requires you to think about race, ethnicity, education, gender, sexuality, religion, like all of these other things, income inequality, that's huge in public health. So like, it's easy, especially if you come from sort of the Michelle Foucault school, like it's very easy to just think of public health as sort of the state, right? And as like the enemy in that way, perhaps. But in fact, there's so many people in public health who care about the same things that people in a lot of humanities fields care about, but you know, they use much more empirical methods. And so that Two is a site where there's sometimes friction and kind of, you know, divergent views. So that was one surprise, I guess, but there were many. So can I ask, what are some key ways from, you know, whether it be your initial research or your later public health interactions in which portraying disease in media, you know, works or reflects reality or you know, any of these things that are useful, right, to portray to broader publics? Have there been things in which you've seen that are pretty effective? I mean, there are some famous examples I can think of, like there was a CDC campaign using zombies a few years ago, for example. But are there other things that were maybe more effective than that? Well, so I think one of the other things that drove me to actually go to the length of actually going back to school you know, after many years after finishing a PhD and thinking I was done with all that, was recognizing that the techniques for public health communication and media production in general are like at a structural disadvantage as compared to, say, the advertising industry. Like they do not have much of a budget. They do not have the top artists and creative minds working on their projects. But, you know, big tobacco does and big pharma does and all the rest of it. So, like, there's a huge asymmetry there that means that there's not going to be the same kind of investment as there ideally would be to make health communications better. And this is actually something that has become very clear in the current pandemic. And there have been some interesting creative efforts to try to, like, crowdsource that to as a way to get more artistic contribution. So that's sort of an indirect way of saying, you know, like, I don't think that most of the representations are all that great. However, 
one thing that I think is kind of the opposite of what you're asking in a way, but one thing that public health has learned over time, I think, is how to be less stigmatizing in their representations. And this was something I wrote about very much in my first book, looking at both historical films, health films, but also more recent things that were produced for HIV AIDS and the kinds of like racist and homophobic representations that were in a lot of those films. But like now, for example, there was a lot of discussion, you may recall, early on in this pandemic about naming protocols and avoiding using a geographical location in the name of a variant or in naming a new virus to avoid that kind of stigmatization. And that also goes to how visual representations like that in the past would really use kind of exoticized and fetishized images of people from sites around the world where disease outbreaks had occurred, which then have the effect of kind of creating those figures as icons of infection and contagion. I think the public health media overall, not everywhere, has moved away from that, generally speaking, not perfectly, not at all. But there's less of that now than there used to be. And I think that's partly to do with the kinds of dialogues that have occurred around how to think about the role of representation in these settings. So I actually would like to hear your thoughts about one of the attempts at, I guess, public health outreach I have encountered. So the movie Contagion from 2011 had all those famous actors playing it. I think it was at the beginning of COVID. Those actors partnered with, if I remember correctly, Columbia University, or maybe it was NYU, to produce this series of short videos in each of which one actor would speak for about two to three minutes, I guess, on a specific point that is important for COVID, such as wash your hands, wear masks, and so on. Would that be considered a success? And should we expect seeing more of that? Or was that more of a one-off thing that may have not worked as well as intended? Well, I think that, you know, memory in popular culture I think it might be asking a lot that people remembered. <laughs> I mean, it's true that that movie started circulating again a lot. You know, it was like a top streaming title on whatever platforms it was on at the time in, in the early days of the outbreak. However, you know, so the impulse behind that is valid in the sense that it's definitely true that actors who play well-known and appealing or beloved sorts of characters on popular television shows or in popular movie series do have a lot of influence in terms of communicating health messages because partly that as a source of the message, those figures have already a kind of affective bond with their fans. And that's something that a lot of health communication has failed to grasp is, the, you know, like the role of emotion. It often skews to like rationality and objectivity, which is not how people process these messages. So, you know, like there have been studies of the characters on Grey's Anatomy and how effective their communications, not in PSAs, but like within the show, how when they communicate a storyline about some, you know, particular condition, how much people remember it. And it's really about embedding, you know, having like an appealing character and in a storyline that you can remember, that's much more influential. So I'd say the contagion thing that you're describing, probably not that effective, except for people who were kind of, you know, like in that mode, thinking about that movie in that way. But a popular TV actor or, you know, someone from a Marvel movie, like I think they did some of that, that would probably be a lot more effective. So would it be as effective if an actor who has not played any relevant role for, let's say, a pandemic or anything health-related, is it still effective if they come out and, and support these messages? Yeah, I don't think that the actor has to be related to something medical or health-themed. They have to be liked. They have to be well-liked and familiar. And in that sense, 
trusted in the very loose understanding of trusted, right? But those figures are more trusted in our current world than politicians are, and by some people than scientists or health professionals are. So it's basically moving into the world of influencers, right? And all these Twitter people with millions of fans or so, so just trying to enlist them or get them to help with these efforts. If I understand correctly, that's what you're saying is a good way forward. Well, yes, but here's the big caveat. Not if they're just spouting whatever they're thinking, right? And they don't know what they're talking about. So the thing is, like, I I remember I gave a talk in Hong Kong a number of years ago. And so one of the people who was there had been involved in the city's response to SARS. Like they had been involved in the city government's response. And we started talking afterwards and they were saying, you know, like, it is so hard now with social media because you can't control the message. You can't, like, you can send something out there, but there's so many channels and it can be reinterpreted and then respread in so many different ways. So they were really struggling. And the WHO, folks from WHO have said the exact same thing. They're really struggling with this question now that we, you know, live in this world that isn't top-down media that isn't controlled in that kind of monolithic way that the broadcast era was much more defined by, how do you manage that? And it's true that many different kinds of, you know, so-called influencers can be really effective, but they need actually to be collaborating with people who actually have expertise. So I know that in the tourism sector, for example, let's say municipalities or even countries or companies would kind of find these influencers online and just bring them for usually an all expenses paid, some kind of sort of trip or show them something for these influencers to take photos of themselves and upload them. And that is supposed to help tourism to, again, the specific sector or country or, or city or whatever. Do you know if anyone has been trying to do that in the public health sector? That is to say, just find influencers, bring them on to, let's say, a hospital or something, give them a couple of lectures, show them what's going on, and then ask them to get involved. I mean, is, is that something that is even being thought of or am I too optimistic? No, I mean, that's happening with like celebrity type influencers. Sometimes they're doing it of their own accord, like Arnold Schwarzenegger is. I don't know if you've been following any of that. I had some great conversations with my students last spring, actually, about his whole hot tub video with this cigar. I don't know if you saw that. Yeah. So that is kind of like he's doing that on his own. But certainly the U.S. government, you know, I mean, they did not have a great proactive strategy for how to communicate about the vaccine. So that has not gone well, but they did engage a variety of different, you know, sports celebrities and entertainment celebrities and stuff like that. I don't know that they did anything like bring them to a hospital and kind of have them represent like a site like that. It was more about a a policy perspective. And those then ultimately came off more as public service announcements that were being disseminated through Twitter or Instagram or something, as well as on TV or on billboards or those kinds of things. I mean, I think there's a kind of evolving dynamic between the question of what expertise means in a rapidly evolving situation and how you handle communications about that. And so, you know, one of the challenges that folks like the people who work for the WHO face is that they're not comfortable just making declarations until they feel that they're scientifically valid declarations. And that takes a lot of time. And influencers, you know, in the most kind of current sense of the term, they are not scientists, right? So, but they do understand the ways that ideas circulate much better than the scientists do at this point. So we need new methods for kind of bringing those two perspectives together if we are going to manage the problems that we are currently facing around, you know, misinformation about the vaccine and that kind of thing, which also, by the way, is not new. I had this whole thing that I wrote about Zika virus and conspiracy theories, which I could basically change Zika for COVID and like almost publish it again because the same exact problems are occurring. 
So it sounds to me that both from this little back and forth with Lee about influencers, I know Lee is a big fan of TikTok and barely checks his Twitter account though, but that the emotional story side of things is essentially part of the way forward as you're laying out for us, which is in fact, when you boil it down to it, what the humanities does for, you know, lack of a better term, right? It tells stories, it makes sense of all these disparate pieces of data, and it puts them together in a way in which human beings actually function and remember. So then I guess my natural question is connecting that conversation to your work on the website. How do you see bringing those two things together, and it might be preliminary at the moment, moving forward, is it training people, right, that then go out and make movies or make more episodes of Grey's Anatomy, as far as I know that show is like going to go on forever, you know, that embed these ideas, or what are your suggestions kind of for what the humanities should play a role, and then also, of course, advertise, for lack of a better term, that it's actually doing this? Well, one of the things that I have hoped from early on that the Translational Humanities for Public Health Project would do is serve as a kind of resource for curriculum building. So I do hope that people in the humanities who wish to train students, whether it's undergrads or grad students, to do work that is really engaged in this way, that they will use the site to bring that into their classes or to formulate new kinds of classes or to even imagine new kinds of programs. And we do intend, part of our long-term plan is to also help people do that by developing curricular materials on the basis of what's in the site. So that's one thing. I also you know, I plan to develop a, a handful of articles with the team that's been working on this project based on what we're finding in the projects that are on the site to publish and disseminate these ideas that way, both among academics, but also we will write those up for more broadly read venues, both for academics like maybe, you know, inside higher ed, but also stuff like in the Washington Post or in Slate or that kind of thing. So that certain themes that we've found, like social justice and racial justice, of course, are huge themes in many of the projects. And the question of how are people going from whatever they're doing in the classroom or however their training brought them to this point to something out there. And then what we really want to do in some of these articles is look backward and go, okay, so that happened. But what if we were trying to purposefully make that happen? What pathway would we create are there things we would change? Are there kinds of training that we don't currently do that are necessary? And we're also working with people who do work with policymakers to try to gain insights from them about what is the best way to reach policymakers with this kind of material. And then hopefully we'll be able to use that to develop additional features of the site. So based on your experience so far, who is most receptive to your message? Or which kind of audience or which institutions or what kind of media? What worked? What was the easiest way forward? Well, certainly a lot of humanities scholars in a lot of different fields around the world have been very receptive. So it's clear that there is a felt need for this kind of sort of development of the work that people have been doing, there is a real interest in it and a desire to engage in it among people in lots of different fields. So that's definitely there. And that's really encouraging to me. I'm excited about that. And I really enjoy talking about this work with people who are looking to build ways to do that kind of work into their own programs. Beyond that, I find that Arts communities have played a really important role in responses to the pandemic in ways that are not fully understood and appreciated yet. I mean, like, I think that people early understood and appreciated that it was really nice to, like, hear a free yo-yo concert on the internet or something, or, like, hear their neighbors playing whatever music and that kind of thing. It was soothing in a certain way. 
but there's something beyond that that is yet to be fully developed, but that people in those communities are really keen to develop. And like there is some work in, for instance, the role of arts and healthcare, but I think there's a whole other level to that that we really have not even begun to approach that needs a kind of you know rigorous methodology and that it's in its earliest stages. And I think that's something that could come out of this a lot and that I'd be excited to see come out. I guess the other two groups I would say I'm curious about would be going back to, say, the public health people that you trained with and maybe working with them in terms of the storytelling. And I'm curious about that aspect. And then the second group would be, say, call them the public policy school. I don't know if Rice has a public policy school, but working with them to train their students again, who are often going to then go off and work in government or work in consulting firms that work with governments, et cetera. Right. Yes. I do see both of those audiences as real target audiences, but I also see them as in some ways a little bit harder to reach right now, though for totally different reasons. The public health folks are just slammed. They are just like you know, medical providers, they're maxed out. They've been maxed out this whole time. So it's hard to ask, I guess I would say, for people's time when I know what they're going through right now. And so I am looking for a pause to come that will give us that space to have those conversations because I actually do see that as a really amenable venue. And partly because I have all these connections already having done this MPH, and partly because on the basis of that experience, I know that people are open and receptive to it. So that is something that is a near-term goal, and that, you know, to me, it's kind of a question of when they can come up for air, basically. The policymakers, to me, that is both one of the most important audiences and also one of the toughest nuts to crack, right? Because That is shaped both by ideology, but also by just the rhetorical norms of that world, which really require, I think, a kind of skill at boiling down like impact and sort of return on investment kinds of things, you know, that I am looking for help on. So we don't have a public policy school, but we do have a public policy institute that's pretty, um, influential. And I am in communication with the people there actually to set up a meeting soon to start finding out, you know, what we could do together to move that forward. Because I do think that ultimately that's one of the most critical sites of intervention, but it's a whole other language, I think. So it's something that requires really a lot of preparation to do it effectively. Yeah, so I guess that would be a good place to wrap up this interview with kind of looking forward to hopefully influencing policymakers in the near future. So we'd like to thank you, Kirsten, for coming on the podcast and for this conversation. It's been great. Thank you. It's been great for me too. It's been really fun talking to you both. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. So I really enjoyed that interview because Kirsten was really good about reflecting both on her own academic work and how that's changed over time from, say, her first book to her more recent work. But then also, among other things, what I really enjoyed discussing was what I'll call the $64,000 question, to use a nice dated popular reference culture, which I guess... Some of you will get, although she seems to think many of you will not, which is she's interested in how do you get people, the broader publics, to realize that humanities have a practical daily use? Right. And I think that's basically the question that we have been struggling with for quite some time, both on the podcast, both in some of the interviews that we've had, and in our reflections. I mean, it's a recurring question that. I still don't think we have a good answer for at this point. Yeah, I think she's 
thinking and she mentioned that the humanities and the arts are the obvious places to start, but she wants to expand this to public health and public policy. And I think, well, you know me, Lee, that especially the public policy people are really key in this because I think you have to get past the quote unquote purely academic, if you want to use that term, spheres and more into how do you actually influence policy. And if you remember at one point, I asked, I think, Sven Eric on that episode, if he trains people to maybe plant them in government ministries, although he admitted, I think that was a bit too far. But yeah, I mean, the challenge is really how to move outside of the more standard circles for us, which is to say humanities people and and the arts, which are as close as you can get, I guess, to the humanities and move from there to the further away spheres, but the spheres that also seem to have more influence on, let's say, reactions to COVID in this case, or influence on policy more broadly speaking, if we want to take it that way. And I think that's, again, it has been and still is the challenge so far. Now, one thing that Kirsten said that did not come up in previous episodes is really the emphasis on influencers. So these would be, again, social media personalities, people with maybe hundreds of thousands or millions or tens of millions of followers on anything from, I guess, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. By the way, I have only a Twitter account. I don't think I've ever really gone on Instagram or TikTok, but we can discuss that in some later episode. But maybe these people, these influencers are a way forward that we haven't really acknowledged, right? So somehow convey your message to them and have them convey your message to a broader audience. Now, of course, it's a bit more complicated than that because there are a lot of people who are trying to get these influencers to convey messages and are willing to pay quite a lot for such messages to be conveyed. I don't know if you've ever watched or heard about the Fire Festival, Merle? No. So this was supposed to be a huge party in which I guess an entrepreneur got like a bunch of influencers to tweet and write posts about this massive party and it completely flopped. But for me, I guess that is evidence for the power of these influencers on one hand, but also on the amount of really resources, funding that you need to spend to get them to do what you want them to do. Sure, I don't disagree with that as a communications outlet, but I guess I'm more interested in her views on, as I said, the $64,000 question, which is how do you get people to value the humanities, right? I mean, it's not through telling them that you get critical thinking skills or close reading, right? I don't think that's necessarily worked, although you and I probably say it all the time in our teaching. But it's getting people to translate their humanities background and realize that, in fact, they're the ones shaping the stories that we then process every day, right? So whether it be watching Bachelor in Paradise, which as a plug, Lee, Bachelor in Paradise has started this week, which is made up of stories and producers, or it's reading, you know, long form essays in your favorite, The Atlantic whatever it might be, right? Those are inherently taking the humanity skills and making them quote unquote practical. Now, I think the humanities don't like to talk in this way because at the end of the day, we are doing to an extent artistic work. And even you on TikTok, or I guess not on TikTok is artistic work, I would say on TikTok, but we don't necessarily want to just translate our work into the market economy, because at the end of the day, I think most humanities people would argue that it's the market itself, which is distorting much of the world. And so there's obviously a tension there. I mean, yes, it distorts a lot of what's going on around us, but what's the alternative, right? Can you ignore it? I don't think so. I don't have an alternative, certainly. And I don't think you can ignore it, but I'm just pointing out the tension for most academics, at least, right? That a lot of your work may not necessarily be based on immediate impact in the market, nor should it be, I would argue. But 
as we've long said in this podcast, there needs to be deeper thinking about the practicalities of how our work actually translates or ultimately we're having problems selling what it is we do to people as having any practicalities. Right, and that actually connects to what Ben Trump was saying several weeks ago, kind of recommending that we, scholars, academics, social scientists, humanists, should try to get our messages, try to condense really our messages down to, I mean, essentially sound bites, right? That people can apply and use when they, as an example, formulate policy or try to plan policy. Yeah, I think that's one thing. But I also think if you remember what Ben said, he also made the point that even when he was giving briefings to policymakers, politicians, people in the higher ranks in the army, they were still thinking through the stories themselves, right? So I think if I recall, he talked about how some briefings they would discuss contagion, right? And so whether or not it was wrong or maybe didn't have an influence on, say, you know, a 20-year-old who's on TikTok, I don't know why we keep going to the 20-year-old TikTok here, but that on people who have policy clout, that in some sense, they were also thinking in those stories. So I think, yes, on the one hand, condensing things down, but on the other hand, making it into the stories. Which again is the challenge, right? Is the challenge that is probably going to remain a challenge for the foreseeable future, but we'll, we'll keep on trying to reflect upon this between ourselves and with future guests. So before we wrap up this episode, Merle, maybe a way to, to continue this conversation would be to hear a bit about your take on social media and maybe hear more about what social media platforms are you on? What do you think about them? That's a good question, Mike. So I've been on Facebook since whenever Facebook was around, but I, like most people, I think, seems like under the age of 50, don't really use Facebook all that much except to keep track of people who you tangentially know. I'm also on Instagram, and that's a much more selective group of people under 100 that I follow and follow me. Oh, I did not take you to be one of the Instagram people. I mean, I don't do influencing. I don't follow celebrities or whatever. I follow essentially people I'm kind of friends with and I want to actually keep in contact with. And yes, I know there's an irony that Instagram is owned by Facebook. I understand this. But it was my way of when Instagram came out that I actually selected down a smaller group of people. So you can go on Instagram, Lee, and follow me. And it's mostly my kids. So I actually post about them doing funny things. Okay, I'll, I'll check Instagram now. And so then, are you on any other social media platforms? Yeah, and then as you know, I'm on Twitter for the good, hot, positive academic takes on the academy. And I mean that entirely facetiously. All right, so that's three. Anything else? LinkedIn? LinkedIn, I guess, is somewhere in between, right? I mean, there's also Academia EDU, which is even more in between. It's like probably not really a social media platform kind of trying to move towards that direction in various ways what are you on lee i know you're on facebook well i'm not really on facebook i have a facebook account but i don't think i've looked at it in a very very long time so yeah i've been on that for probably over a decade but i don't use facebook at all i have never really understood instagram which I guess means that I'm very old. I am using Twitter every once in a while. Do WhatsApp and Telegram, are they considered to be social media platforms? I mean, because you do get the groups thing, that like the social groups there, which is pretty big here in Israel. So like groups that communicate on anything. So for example, here, if you want to have a secondhand group of people donating their stuff. So you'd have a group on, let's say, either WhatsApp or Telegram or anything like that. Yeah, that might exist in the United States, but I don't know anyone who does it that way. That's mostly done via Facebook Marketplace. So my wife is on Facebook more because she's constantly buying and selling 
mostly kids stuff for cheap or free. People use both Telegram and WhatsApp for those things because we don't really have any good Craigslist equivalent here. So it's just devolved into basically private groups doing these things. Fair enough. I mean, I always think of WhatsApp as basically when I communicate with you or other people who are not in the United States, but I almost never use it because everyone here just basically has an iPhone and messages on iMessage, I would say. Yeah, so Apple is definitely not as big here. And I would say that on WhatsApp, there are like many, many groups that are very busy and do everything. Again, so in the United States, these would probably be like Facebook groups or something. But here, it's it's just being done through WhatsApp. It's easier to communicate that way here. I have one last question before we go, Lee. Are you going to get on TikTok now to try to get some of these influencers to push our podcast? Yeah, maybe. Maybe you're inspiring me, Merle. I'll go on and check TikTok. I, I don't think, again, I don't think I've ever been on TikTok to understand what's it about. I, mean, I saw their ads, but I don't think I've actually been on. Yeah, so on this note of discovering new social media platforms, exciting social media platforms, I guess we can wrap up the episode and we'd like to thank our sponsor, the Hebrew University in Jerusalem for funding us as usual. And our team, our sound editor, Amitai Bralavi, and our webmaster, Virda Kanati, for enabling this podcast to stay up for now 75 episodes. So thank you. Until next time, stay safe, get vaccinated if you can, and give Lee a shout out on TikTok. <laughs>